0: Oh, I used to be a rander, I've been around this town Oh, I used to be a rander, been around this town I've courted pretty Polly, I've been all around Oh, word is pretty Polly, oh, yonder she stands Oh, where is pretty Polly? Oh, yonder she stands. Gold dimes on her fingers and her little white hands. Oh, Polly, pretty Polly, come go along with me. Oh, Polly, pretty Polly, come go along with me. Before we get married, no more pleasure can we see. Oh, I led her over hills and valleys so deep I let her over hills and valleys so deep And then pretty Polly, she began to
1: weep Hi guys, welcome back to... Mur- mountain murders and uh, this is episode three our first one of the new year happy That's new year right so starting yeah. off
2: 2019 with a brand new murder
1: a brand new murder and we're taking it way back in the day for this
2: one. yeah we are actually so episode three i'm calling this one a murder in a motel
1: yes this is a very interesting one.
2: it sure is and so helen clevenger was a young woman who faced a future of boundless possibilities as she completed her freshman year at NYU. So this is out of the area, which we've been talking about mountain murders, and this is a young woman who was from New York. And in 1936, she embarked on a coming-of-age vacation, if you will, uh, throughout the South.
1: That sounds like fun.
2: Right? Yeah. I mean, you're young, life is full of possibilities, you decide to maybe try out something new.
1: Rich people moves.
2: <laughs> is that what we call that? <laughs> That's what that is. <laughs> well, Clevenger right. was 19 and she grew up in Staten Island. She was the daughter of a chemist. She was brainy, very bright. She earned several scholarships, was popular in high school, was considered one of the smart smart girls, you know. And then, of course, that took her to NYU. And in early June, she left New York for Raleigh. North Carolina, where her uncle, his name is William Clevenger, was a professor of agriculture and food science at North Carolina State College, which, of course, is now North Carolina State University, and his specialty was, like, dairy science, if you will. So she came from a family of, uh, you know, very intelligent folks. I mean, her uncle's a professor, her dad was a chemist, so she had a lot of uh, potential and a lot of expectations, And her uncle, the Professor Clevenger, was a 54-year-old bachelor, and he'd planned a weeks-long car trip across the region with his niece and was hoping to stop at some of the colleges. And he'd really hoped that this trip would inspire Helen to consider lofty career choices, maybe science, medicine, academia. And young Clevenger was pretty thrilled by the trip. It left her feeling like an adult um in full you know for the first time she was kind of out on her own getting to do her own thing coming of age experience yeah seeing the
1: country exactly yeah yeah.
2: having an experience that was completely different of course than what she had known living in new york city and staten island and then she comes to the south and i'm sure that was like a completely different cultural experience for her
1: yeah i'm sure
2: And um, so she was thrilled by the trip, and she scribbled a lot of notes in her diary each night, and she sent these really giddy letters to her friends and family back home in New York about the many adventures. And like I said, she was keeping a diary. And so she was documenting, you know, pretty detailed um, notes about the trip, the experience, how she was feeling, that kind of thing. And that's going to come into play a little later in the story. So on July 15th, 1936, The traveling pair found themselves in Asheville. Now, you have to consider during the 1930s, Asheville was suffering the impacts of the Great Depression, just like the rest of the nation. I mean, of course, it's still beautiful, scenic, and tourism was a means of employment for many in the area, much like it is today. So that really hasn't changed very much. And Helen and her uncle dined with some friends. Then they returned at 10.30 p.m. to the swanky Battery Park Hotel which was a downtown gym. Now, the hotel was built in 1924 during a boom in Asheville construction, so during better times. And during that time, a lot of uh, construction, like I mentioned, was happening in downtown Asheville or what is now considered downtown Asheville. You had the uh, Jackson Building, Pack Square, the beautiful Art Deco Masterpiece, the Asheville City Building, the Buncombe County Courthouse, Grove Arcade. I mean, of course, many of those buildings still standing and still drawing a lot of attraction oh yeah there's some
1: really beautiful buildings there
2: right so the original battery park hotel so i thought this was pretty interesting this is something i didn't know the original battery park hotel was actually built in 1886 by colonel frank cox and it was designed by a philadelphia architect named edward hazlehurst in this spectacular queen anne style and it was actually the first hotel in the south with an electric elevator wow yeah And so right here in uh, Western North Carolina, how cool is that? And one with the first um, electric lighting. So this was like a high-end. So they
1: were still probably using gas. Kind of place, A lot of gas lanterns and whatnot.
2: Well, a fire came through and destroyed the original hotel. And so a second Battery Park Hotel was relocated. So the first was in a completely different area, whatever. So they relocated the second building downtown in the 20s. And they brought in an architect from New York City, and he designed this 220-room battery park hotel that stands today. And actually, I think now it's like a um, an apartment building, but it's still downtown. You can still go visit the area and see, you know, where the hotel was originally. And this modern building was built with brick, limestone, terracotta, concrete. It was like this Mission Revival roof that offered a dining area. And it was like this mix of neoclassical and Spanish romanticism. So for the time, it was like this wow kind of hotel. Yeah. You know, like something that most folks around here had probably never really seen before. So, you know, pretty swanky.
1: Fancy building. And
2: especially, you know, something like that during the Depression. Right. You know, being able to stay there. And from what I understand, staying in a really high-end hotel like that during this time period would have cost about a fifty a night.
1: Wow. And if
2: you had a corner room with like a really nice view, $3 a night.
1: Oh, but I'm going to assume that's pretty expensive for the day.
2: Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. So after good nights, so they'd had dinner with friends. They'd had a great evening. So after they had said their good nights, Helen retired to her room, which was 224. And her uncle, the professor, went to his chamber down the hall and the young woman slipped into her pajamas, curled up with her pen and paper, because, again, she was keeping this diary. And so it was really important for her to document everything that was happening, you know, throughout the trip and her life. So at midnight, this electrical storm just raced through the mountains. And amid the storm, there was a guest across from 224 who was startled by what he thought was a gunshot. So E.B. Pitnam, an employee of the state banking department, said he was brushing his teeth when he heard what sounded like a woman screaming and then a gunshot. And so this would have been somewhere around like 12.45, 1 o'clock in the morning. So a couple hours after Helen had gone to bed, right? So he pops his head out into the hallway, and later he stated that he saw this dark figure of a man in the corridor. But, you know, it was dark. The lights were out in the hallway because the storm was happening. Now, I don't think there was like a power outage, but maybe that's just the time they didn't have... lighting in the hallways. Yeah, I'm sure. Barely
1: barely had lights at all. So
2: Pittman rang the front desk, and Daniel Gaddy, who was, of course, a drowsy house detective, kind of came up, poked around, but decided it was like this thunderclap boom and went back downstairs. And I guess E.B. Pittman actually had a conversation with this dark figure in the hallway. When he popped his head out of the door, he said, Oh, I thought I heard some noise. I thought I heard maybe someone screaming. And the voice said, oh, yeah, I thought I heard something like that, too. Wow. And that was kind of like the end of the conversation. And, he, you know, Pittman didn't think anything about it, called the detective, decided to go back to bed.
1: He could have very possibly been talking to the killer.
2: Well, exactly. And so another guest from New York was a businessman named uh, L. Curtis. And he stated that he had heard noises as well um, around the same, you know, time frame. And a few hours later... So it would have been maybe around 3 a.m. or so. He went downstairs to drop off some letters that needed to be mailed out the next morning. And he inquired about the noises while he was down at the front desk. And the house detective, Gaddy, reassured the guest that he had checked on the noise complaint earlier. But it was likely just weather related. Probably just someone was frightened by the, the loud thunder. Or maybe it was just, you know, the sound of the thunder. And maybe, you know, someone thought it was something more and not to worry about it, it had been checked out, to go back to sleep, not a big deal. So around 7.30 in the morning, so this would have been July 18th, the next morning, uh, William Clevenger, uh, the uncle slash, you know, professor, um, got no answer when he knocked to wake his niece. So he goes to knock on the door, and uh, he kind of notices that the door was unlocked and maybe even kind of cracked like a little ajar, you know? Thought that was weird, so he pushed through the unlocked door, And was startled to discover her body on the floor. So her pajamas painted crimson with blood. She had a gunshot to her breast. Her face was disfigured from a pistol whipping. And a thirty-two caliber bullet casing lay by the body.
1: Oh, my God. Yeah. Could you imagine finding a family member like that?
2: Well, Clevenger later would say, and, you know, it was recorded in police notes that he said it was awful. Just awful. As you can imagine. And so, you know, your young niece comes to visit you. She's in your care. She's entrusted, um, you know, in your care by her family. And something like this happened. I mean, that That's has horrible. to be devastating. But also, you would feel such immense guilt. Yeah. Right?
1: Like, yeah. What if, You're
2: supposed to be taking care of her. There's
1: always the what if when something like this happens. Exactly. What if I had stayed with her longer? What if I had went earlier, you know, crazy, beat yourself yeah. up?
2: So some hotel guests were scrutinized as an investigation began, and several potential suspects were detained, including the professor and Gaddy, the house detective. Mark Vollner was a German-born violinist who lived in Asheville, and he was even held for several days when it was learned that he had took a date to the Battery Park Hotel that night. But all were soon freed, and police had concluded the murder was an inside job. Dun, dun, dun. I feel like we need a sound effect for that. <laughs> so, apparently, there were these 12 keys, which were like skeleton keys, you know, that opened any room in the hotel. Right. And so, 11 of those keys were accounted for and assigned to employees. Um, and, you know, during the early stages of the investigation, everybody who was assigned a key had their key. But then, suddenly, at some point, this 12th key was discovered. Wow. And nobody knew... That there was even 12 keys. The uh, manager, everybody that had a key, they thought they were just the 11. So they were like, where did this 12th key come from?
1: No, that's really weird.
2: Right? And no one noted the key in the lock upon the discovery of the crime. So when the uncle went to the room, he didn't notice this key in the lock. Uh, you know, the cops, as they were making their way into, you know, examine the crime scene, like no one even noticed this key until sometime later.
1: So there, it was in the lock.
2: Well, I think they found it in the or room. They found it
1: in a room, okay. Right.
2: So they're like, okay, well, where did this key come from?
1: Well, that's crazy. Because all
2: of the essential employees that were assigned a key had their key. I mean, it was just and no one who was on duty that night even had access to this key, kind of thing. I mean, so it was like a really weird.
1: Well, yeah, they didn't even know the twelfth key existed. Peculiar, I mean, so that's exactly very strange,
2: kind of thing. So, like, where did this key come from? Then there was even question about did this key turn up later, like after the fact. Ah. Uh, like, did someone plant it there later as, like, a, you know, a red herring or to throw them off the case or a trail? You know what I mean? That's so weird. Just kind of an odd thing. Well, cops ended up interrogating 60 hotel staffers, but they focused their suspicion on two young black bellhops, a guy ah. named Joe Yuri and another one named L.D. Roddy. Mm. Well, both swore innocence, and the investigation kind of foundered. Well, the only clues that were left behind really were the bullet casing and a fleeting glimpse of a lanky man that was seen vaulting 15 feet from a hotel balustrade in the middle of the night. And, and of course, the shadowy figure that was in the hallway that the gentleman, um, Mr. Pitman, E.B. Pitman had seen, Pitman, I can't get his name out, you know, that he had seen earlier and he described it as like a tall, dark figure. So, um, August 7th, so this is, you know, a couple weeks after this murder, um, the NYPD dispatched two ace detectives to Asheville. Uh, Thomas Martin was a 28-year-old veteran, and his boss described him as the best homicide man in the world. Oh, yeah.
1: Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, and
2: John Quinn Jr., another detective. So, they were sent from New York down to Asheville because, of course, her family is demanding answers. Right. Right. The big city, you know, New York police don't feel like anything's really being done by these local yokel Asheville cops. They don't have a lot of faith in the The Asheville cops are like, you know, at a standstill because they don't really, I mean, they can't really go much further. They don't have any more evidence to work with. So, you know, the investigation's kind of not going anywhere. So I guess the the Asheville cops were kind of happy to have some of these big city cops come in. And especially someone like Martin, who had that reputation as being a great homicide detective. So as they arrived into town, there was a hotel cook named Banks Taylor. And he actually told the police that Battery Park janitor Martin Moore, a 22-year-old employee there, owned a thirty-two revolver. Mm. So that gave them another piece of evidence, uh, another clue to go on. So cops hurried to question Moore, of, of course, and after some denials, um, he led officers to his gun, which at that point had been wrapped in burlap and tucked in a crawl space under his house.
1: That's kind of weird.
2: That is kind of weird.
1: Weird place to keep your gun.
2: Well, Moore immediately said he had loaned the gun to his coworker Roddy, and uh, that Roddy had it during the time of the murder and had given it back to him. Well, the weapon was rushed by airplane. To New York to a lab in Brooklyn um, for examination because, of course, we didn't really have the forensics and that kind of big city police work down here in the mountains. Well, while it was being examined in New York at this lab, uh, blonde hairs similar to Clevengers were said to be found on the weapon.
1: That'd be consistent with a pistol whipping, wouldn't it?
2: Yeah, exactly. And there were some bits of like blood you know like splatter on it as well right now Sheriff Lawrence Brown who was the Buncombe County Sheriff at the time announced that Moore had confessed and he released a 700 word transcript of Moore's confession now later Moore said and this is a quote he said I got scared I figure she was not in the room but when I got in she was there and she screamed that's why I shot her so he also stated in his confession that that his original plan was to rape the young woman. So first he says he he went in there to rob her. He was going to steal from her room. He gets in there. He didn't think she was going to be in there, and she was, and then he panicked and shot her. But then later went on to say, well, because nothing had been taken from the room. Right. None of her valuables had been taken. There was like a gold watch on the nightstand.
1: Well, that's kind of weird, though. I mean, the time of night. Right. Why would you not expect a guest to be in the room? You know, it's it's after midnight. Exactly. So that's kind of
2: odd. Yeah, that is. And so then he recanted that story and said, well, I went in to rape her. Right? Well, then he quickly disavowed the confession and said he was coerced by Brown and that he was beaten with a rubber hose by, as he describes, a fat man from New York, which apparently was referring to the Detective Quinn. Hmm. But a psychiatrist named Dr. Mark Griffin said that Moore confessed to him four days later, and he was indicted and placed on trial for his life August 19th, which was just 11 days after leading cops to the pistol. Now, his attorney, Jay Scroop Stiles, argued against the legitimacy of the confession, squeezed out, and said that this man was vulnerable, he was ill-educated, he was young, you know. That he was coerced.
1: Yeah, you can imagine if there is, if he, it's the 30s.
2: And Rice is definitely going to play a He's factor. He's a young black man. I mean, we still have these problems the today.
1: So, it's very possible. But you are going to
2: see this, you know, what, 70, 80 years ago? Oh, yeah.
1: I mean, it's a given. It's not even a, if it happened. It, it definitely happened. You know, he was handled in a certain way. You know, he was, they instantly probably thought he did it. Because you know they probably still look at him as like a lesser human being than white people, so I mean that's very possible, that well, yeah, he was I mean, this
2: was what just not even a like you know what sixty seventy yeah. years after the Civil War right. I mean the South was still very racially divided, people oh yeah. were very prejudiced, so I'm sure that his race was a huge factor in this, right, and you know when he's saying he was beaten, I mean that's probably accurate, we still have. Police brutality. We still have people that are beaten. Yep. And and under duress when they give confessions. Yep. Um, so you know, very, very likely story, you know. Not discrediting that story at all. Well, um, Moore and his family even testified that he was at a birthday party at the time of the murder.
1: Well, there's an alibi.
2: So he had an alibi. But I guess the detectives and the judge, the attorneys, were somewhat able to maybe poke some holes in that story. And Judge Don Phillips approved the confession, and the prosecutor, Zeb Nettles, rode that decision, of course, to a victory. Yeah. So the jurors, all white, of course.
1: Yeah, jury of his peers. Jury of his
2: peers, exactly. Yeah. Returned a guilty verdict in only an hour. Wow. Yeah. So Moore was condemned to die, and he was placed on a fast track to North carolina's brand new gas chamber. Wow and um somebody wrote, if the verdict stirred Moore, he failed to show it. That is what the uh, court recorder wrote, you know, as he's being sentenced and the verdict is hand handed down, his sentence is handed down, so they're saying he basically he didn't show any kind of Remorse. He didn't seem upset or scared for his life. That he's just very, you know, straight faced as he's finding out he's going to the gas chamber. Well, an appeal was brushed aside because Attorney Stiles missed a court mandated deadline that came just two weeks after the trial.
1: Wouldn't that be poor counsel or, you know, being misrepresented or misrepresented?
2: It's, I mean,
1: i mean yeah. that, that that's kind of important a deadline on my appeal for my life i mean i don't know but this was again back then well yeah were. i mean i'm
2: sure this attorney was like you know this is a swift justice he's a black man in the south
1: before all we know he could have been getting blowback for representing the guy
2: i mean you never know right So the NAACP, which had monitored the trial and declared it orderly and apparently fair, had second thoughts. So initially the NAACP said, okay, this this seems legit. We're not going to get involved. But then later had those second thoughts and they created a campaign to try to save Moore's life. But I guess the end came before the group made any progress on trying to overturn his sentence. So on December 11th, now, keep in mind, this murder happened in July. Wow. So here we are, what, five months later? Yeah. Not even quite a full five months later. December 11th, 1936, Moore was executed in the gas chamber in Raleigh. And from what I could find in some details, it said that it took him about 12 minutes to die in that gas chamber. Wow. Which seems like a while.
1: Uh, Yeah. And uh, so apparently he had no appeals.
2: No appeals. He had
1: to one trial. Jury deliberated for an hour, a jury of his peers, an all-white jury of his peers, which is a joke. And then, uh, what, less than five, around five months later, he's in the gas chamber.
2: Well, and if you think about it, I mean, the only evidence the police really had to tie him to this murder was the gun. Right. Which he did have in his possession and did have, apparently, the blonde hairs that would have gone along with a pistol whipping. And, uh, you know, they said, well, it is a thirty-two caliber. It's a thirty-two gun. I mean, it was like that's really kind of the only smoking gun they had.
1: Why do you keep the gun?
2: But even if you, well, I mean, it's like, okay, he's saying he loaned it to someone and got it back. Well, that makes sense. I mean, that, okay, maybe, you know, he got this gun back, but why would you put it in a burlap sack and hide it under the house? That's the part that I find so weird is that. There's a lot of stuff here that makes me think, well, maybe they got the wrong man. Right. But then when you find that and he led them he to knew the gun, gun was there. that was under the house, right. mean, that part's pretty strange. It is strange. Maybe. Because if he didn't know it was under the house, then you could say arguably well, maybe he did lend it to someone and they were framing him for this murder.
1: Yeah, so that's kind of tough there. I mean, it's uh this is us looking back on it decades later, you know, from uh, you know how we view things nowadays and obviously we're going to instantly point out he's black in the south and all that yeah, this was
2: a huge but, story um, i mean it made headlines in the new york times wow in all of these major papers this was a story that got picked up um you know on the wires if you will yeah. and kind of made national news this young blonde beautiful college student who was very smart scholarship winner Does that Um, sound familiar to the sensationalized
1: murder stories nowadays? Yeah. I mean, isn't that funny? You know,
2: small town of Asheville, which had um, notoriety for being like a touristy spot. Right. Um, At the time, uh, the Grove Park Inn was only about, what, 10, 15 years old. It was this resort destination. You had famous people like F. Scott Fitzgerald and his wife hanging out in Asheville and visiting these resorts and spas. People were coming here for the healing you know, area, which we get a lot of that today. Yeah. So, you know, it was a a big deal. And um, I was actually reading some interviews with local people um, who remember this story. And there was one gentleman, uh, Booker T. Sherrill, who um, I guess is kind of a a known person in Asheville. He gave an interview um, years ago where he talked about being an employee at the Battery Park Hotel when this happened. Wow. And he is, of course, a black man. And he said that he was off, I guess, at the time that this happened. He actually was getting married, like, the weekend or whatever of this murder. And so he was off getting married. And that he remembers, you know, the talk, the interview. um, And he said he honestly didn't think Moore was guilty. He said he just didn't think the guy had the mental capacity to do something like this. And that there was speculation that the owner's son was involved.
0: Oh, wow.
2: And I couldn't find anything else about that. But, uh, of course, here we are, you know, what, 80-some years later. Yeah, So it's tough. you know, it's, of course, hard to find those details. It but, seems
1: like you'd have to be an alpha male type of person, personality, like a real, you know, to do something like that. Because well, that's and, pretty violent. Well,
2: and what's the motive? I mean, that's and the what is that the motive? When I'm looking at this case, I mean, with a lot of these, you can kind of see a motive. I mean, we talked about the the Nance dude case last episode, right? And her, I feel like her motive one is, you know, I don't think she was working alone. I think no, she had help. And two, I think it was an act of desperation. Right. You know, couldn't
1: take care of the kid or the I mean, parents like didn't you, want it, the dad look at didn't these want cases the kids. And
2: a lot of times you're like, okay, what is the motive? I right. Mean, and this is not like a serial type of murder where um, Martin Moore, if he truly were guilty, had gone off and murdered several people and she just happened to be a victim of circumstance or opportunity. Right. I that- mean, whoever did this had to get this key. They obviously had to. Kind of plotted out. They had to know ahead of time she's this young, single female. She's staying in a room alone. Right. She doesn't have – I mean, because there was even talk about, you know, she kept this very detailed diary. And I said that will come in later to play. Well, she had kept this very detailed diary. And, of course, cops thought, well, maybe she had some kind of late-night date. Maybe she had been in town for a day or so. Maybe she had met someone. Yeah. Maybe she had invited a, a gentleman caller perhaps up to her room and didn't want her uncle to know about it. Or that she had some sort of late night date where she was going to like sneak out and go off for the evening and come back in the wee morning hours. I mean, but she had not detailed any of that. And, and like I said, her diary was pretty open to um, like everything that was going on. So had she met someone, it would have definitely been in there. Right. Um, so then, of course, that was ruled out. So you have to think about the motive. I mean, doesn't nothing was to be taken one. from the room.
1: Or it doesn't appear to be one for Mr. Moore to have committed the
2: crime. Exactly.
1: Someone had a reason to kill her.
2: You and, would think. And what is that reason? I mean, and if he's confessing and saying, well, my original idea was to get in there and rob her where I was going to take stuff, I mean, perhaps— um, the person did go in to rob her. She started screaming. They didn't realize they were going to have to kill her. They got freaked out and left like they knew they had to get out of there.
1: Yeah. It just seems like a bad time to do that. I mean, these guests would go off for the day and do a bunch of stuff and go sightseeing. It just seems like you could pick a. If you're an employee, you know, the comings and goings of the guests middle of the day when they're not, you know, it seems like you'd pick when you know they were for a fact not there.
2: Well, exactly. And she had just returned they went to, to bed yeah. at ten thirty, and they had just returned from being out for several hours with right. friends out having dinner on the town
1: and it's late i mean why so, would you not expect someone to be in the room at that time of night
2: yeah so i feel like That's the robbery weird. motive is definitely mm, questionable and then when he recanted that confession and said his original plan was to rape her i mean that honestly makes more sense but then you have to factor in all of these other things, like, was his confession coerced? Right. Is it reliable? Um, right. Obviously, race, I think, had a huge factor. He was you know, fast-tracked. There's this. no
1: doubt about that. No appeal. I mean, how is that even legal back then, even? I know. No, just a, your, your lawyer misses a deadline on some paperwork, and you get no appeal. And five around five months later, you 12 minutes to die in a gas chamber.
2: The whole thing is just very um, questionable. And, of course, we are not going to solve the case today, but um, I just find all of that so interesting.
1: Yeah, And is. so,
2: like I mentioned, this fellow, Booker T. Sherrill, who had worked there, an employee, and he says, you know, I remember when this happened, and I don't think Moore did it. And there was talk about, like, the manager's son, the owner's son had done this, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, he also said that... um You know, this was a murder that really rocked Asheville for another eight to ten years. I mean, he said people were still talking about this like, you know, a decade later. Oh, remember that girl who was murdered at the hotel? And he said that for a while they even like blocked off that second floor and they weren't letting people stay there.
0: Wow. And that
2: once they even opened up the second floor to that hotel, that they wouldn't rent that room out. That that room was off limits for like years. Wow yeah and of course, doing some digging online um there's alleged rumors of course that the hotel is haunted oh because yes of, this of murder. course well, what I thought was pretty interesting is that uh there was um you know back in the uh day of the thirties and forties, there was a um what do you call it a radio show that would come on the um that would come on you know the air. And uh, it was like a true crime kind of show, so even back in the day, people were interested in true crime, so we're we're nothing new, no nope. as they say nothing new under the sun and There was this radio show called True Detective Mysteries that was a hugely popular radio series that was based on True Detective magazine and it was later even sponsored by Listerine, oh, so it was like a big deal, yeah, well, in nineteen thirty seven so Um, July 1937 which was just you know about a year after this case had uh had been in the news and been a big big story um the True Detective Mysteries actually did a show an episode on the Helen Clevenger case and so if you go to YouTube you could pull up this True Detective Mysteries show and you can listen to this old radio broadcast of course it's classic golden age radio crime drama um you can definitely tell it's From AM radio, and of course, I've worked in radio, so I can tell you, you know, what AM sounds like. It's A little little crunchy, and so if you go pull it up, you can listen to the story. It's really interesting, but uh, it's hard, you know, some of it's hard to understand just because it's so old. Yeah, I bet. But there again, it's like they even had a true crime broadcast of the story in 1937, so, I mean, this story was a big deal.
1: That's pretty wild. I can't believe I've never heard of it.
2: I know, right? And so when you're digging around into some of these Appalachian, Western North Carolina, true crime stories, um, Helen Clevenger case, not something that's probably going to pop up right off the bat. Right. But if you do some digging, you can find some of these really interesting murders. And that's why we, of course, are doing this show, because we want to uh, tell folks about some of the deep dark mysteries here in the mountains
1: and there's a lot of them the more we look we find one uh, or looking for one we'll find two others
2: yeah that's true so there's
1: a lot to come and uh we have some in the works that are pretty grisly pretty vicious murders and so we'll keep working on those
0: of course we will
1: yeah and so, get them ready
2: let's tell them a little bit about how they can uh sign up or join us or yeah. check us out you can find us on Apple Podcast. You can find us on spreaker.com, on the SoundCloud app or at soundcloud.com, and of course Facebook and Twitter, and all you have to do is keyword search Mountain Murders to yeah. find us there. And
1: you'll find us right there. We're
2: also on Patreon. And uh, you know, if you feel compelled to throw us a couple of bucks to help out with the show, uh people seem to have this great idea that if you do a podcast, you're like rolling in money. Oh, and that's simply not true.
1: <laughs> no, and we would like to uh, kind of keep it ad free.
2: Yeah. So well, we that would, would be like cool, to do that. But being able to uh, have a couple bucks, I mean, that helps with like the hosting, you yeah. know, and, and that kind of thing. But, um, and it also helps us just to be able to put more effort into researching some of these cases and hopefully bringing some more that you've never heard before. Like yep. this Helen Clevenger. I mean, I'm from this area. You've lived here. This is a story that I had really never heard of. So no. it was a big surprise when I started digging. And the interesting thing, too, is the newspaper articles that I found, there's a lot of photos. And we're going to post some of those as well uh, to kind of go along with the podcast. And you can find some of those on uh, Facebook and Twitter.
1: Yes, that sounds awesome.
2: Well, until next episode, Happy New Year.
1: Yeah. 2019,
2: it's going to melt our faces off.
1: Yes, it's going to be awesome. It's going to be a really calm year.
2: (laughs) We're going to bring you all the murders.
1: Yes, it's going to be a bunch of grizzly tales coming your way.
2: Exactly. Well, Dylan, as always... You're the best husband. Thank you.
1: Oh, yes. Thank you, Heather, for being a a lovely, murder-loving wife.
2: Thanks. I know. Uh, Without my impeccable research and your (laughs) golden, I don't know, (laughs) color that you bring (laughs) to the show.
1: Yeah. I'm just the everyday guy, point of view coming.
2: And we love it. (laughs) So, anyway, thanks again. And we'll be back soon with our fourth episode. And it's guaranteed to send a little chill up your
1: spine. Oh, yes. It's going to be a doozy.
2: Okay.